I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is your weekly briefing for the week ending August 28th. In this episode, engineers do seem to be different from just about everybody else, and we've got some data to back that up. We sponsor a biennial survey of engineers all around the globe. We call it the Mind of the Engineer, and we've just completed our most recent one. On the podcast here today, we'll be chatting with Jim Warwick of Beacon Technology Partners, the empresario behind our latest edition of The Mind of the Engineer. We'll talk about the stories behind the data, what engineers are really like, and how some simple questions about the job can say an awful lot about subjects as complex as how the supply chain is behaving. Also, one of the most popular benchmarks for artificial intelligence chips is trillions of operations per second, or TOPS. Depending on what you want to do with AI, however, TOPS may or may not be the best way to evaluate AI silicon. Why? Or, perhaps more to the point, why not? In the second part of the show, international editor Junko Yoshida interviews Ian Riches of Strategy Analytics, who recently evaluated the way we evaluate AI. The biennial Mind of the Engineer survey reveals what electronics engineers think about the industry, their profession, and themselves. Our sister publication, EDN, has been sponsoring this survey of engineers for close to 30 years. EE Times and EDN haven't always been owned by the same company, but ever since we've become part of the same publishing house, called AspenCore, we've been doing the Mind of the Engineer survey together. Jim Warwick is the managing partner of the market research firm Beacon Technology Partners. We've had Jim manage the last few Mind of the Engineer surveys for us, but we found out that Jim's background with the project goes back a little farther than that. Jim, you were were involved in the first Mind of the Engineer survey for EDN. Uh, How many years ago was that and what prompted it? Oh, heavens to Betsy, you're asking me to count now? I think that was 27. Heavens to Betsy. I love when people say that. I say that to my wife and she gets mad at me. She says, stop saying that. (laughs) 27 (laughs) years ago, as a matter of fact. Um, When I was working for then uh, what was known as Connors uh, for EDN. And I happened to be one day out at the Silicon Valley sales uh, office. And the sales executive who happened to be responsible for Intel approached me, assuming that I was a smart person, and just asked me what was then a deceivingly simple question. Do engineers white water raft? And wow. So there's uh, is is there some like incredible psychology with that? Or did they really just want to know if engineers like to white water raft? Well, perhaps um, the sales exec was wanting to get into a side business for uh, eco-tourism. But I suspect it was more (laughs) the agency for Intel who simply wanted to get a sense of whether they could use a particular form of creative in a then print ad. I just Uh aged myself by using the phrase print ad. (laughs) Right there with you, buddy. (laughs) 
But what was fun about this was that um, I shrugged my shoulders and I said, I have no idea, but given the fact that I'm director of research, I know how to find out. So we executed a study that got into some lifestyle things, but also started getting into some other matters. Most mm -hmm. surveys get into technology items and, and that sort of thing. This one got into psychographics. What drives the individuals? Uh, what motivates them? What concerns them? And so we came out with what was at that point uh, the first ever psychographic analysis of electronics design engineers. It happened to be just in North America. And we uh, trundled up after the survey was done uh, up to Folsom, I believe, and presented our research uh, on <laughs> transparencies. I mean, this was actually before PowerPoint. <laughs> and uh, and we presented this, and the audience reception was just stunned. And I looked at the other two individuals uh, that I was with, and we nodded and walked out of the room. And we were then greeted by the head of Marcom for Intel, who looked at us all, all three of us, and just said, do you have any idea what you have here? Of course, we all dumbly said no. Um, <laughs> but that was the start of what became Mind of the Engineer. And it's been going strong for nearly three decades. Wow. So, so uh, were they stunned about the just the fact that you had the information or were they stunned because of what was in the information or both oh i think it was the fact that they had never seen anything quite like this let mm. me tell you another story brian uh in the second round uh of our presentations uh, when we started going around to different agencies and so on uh, I had one San Francisco agency to whom we presented this, and uh, one of the uh, account execs just actually asked us, well, how come engineers are so weird? <laughs> and I don't know if, if she was trying to figure out something with her significant other or, or what, um, <laughs> but it was because um, I'm convinced she was a liberal arts grad. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a very uh, consistent way to address uh, other consumers. And she was utterly befuddled at talking to engineers. And we shared with her yet another story. We actually uh, did focus groups, which led up to our first questionnaire. Uh, it was one of the Boston sessions. We were asking a variety of engineers about what uh, you know, what really uh, motivated them and, and so on. And I was trying to get these engineers to articulate what it felt like if they had been working on a very vexing problem for days or weeks, and then they got the answer. What's that feel like? And of course, you know, our engineers tend to be rather prosaic, so they were saying it felt great, it's wonderful. But one of the individuals happened to be, she uh, was a woman, she was um, from Russia, she actually had been trained as a physicist and was actually making the graduation over to power electronics. 
she got so excited trying to answer this question that she started um, shaking and, and just uttering things in Russian. And we said, no, 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 please, please, English, English. We want to understand. And she held up her hands like this. And she says, what I feel like? I feel like little God. <laughs> By the way, for those of us who are part of the first few Mind of the Engineers, uh, feel like little God, we should have emblazoned on our T-shirts because that became our moniker. Uh, but you see, this is what I was trying to explain to this advertising professional, that you have to understand that what drives engineers is this insatiable desire to solve problems. Mm. And they could be technical problems, they could be economic problems, they could be familial problems. By the way, this is, I think, where mansplaining actually originated. It was with <laughs> engineers. We had to don't, explain. Don't, don't make me edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, engineers are very intelligent. They're very mm -hmm. hardworking. They're mm -hmm. very proud. One might even say stubborn, but they love to solve problems. And that hadn't changed. And the fact is, is that we were actually putting flesh on the bones of this for marketers trying to talk to engineers. And I said, you have mm. to talk to them in language they understand. You have to understand what makes them tick. I will also tell you that when we would do, we did a several world tours, actually, they were through the United States. And I would always begin every one of my presentations with asking how many of them, how many of the folks in the room were engineers? And I get a few people raising their hands. And I said, how many of you are married to engineers? A few others would come up. How many of you were married to engineers? More would go up. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you. After every one of those presentations, I had somebody from the room come up to me and said, you just explained my father to me. <laughs> ah, interesting. So we have, you've, you had a sense of, of what an engineering personality is like emerge uh, from the earliest research. And can I assume correctly that that hasn't changed much? As a matter of fact, there has been a remarkable consistency, uh, mm -hmm. both in terms of the drivers, the answers to the various psychographic questions. We actually did a very interesting segmentation way back in the 90s that I reprised a few years ago in one of the subsequent iterations. And that cohort analysis hadn't changed, that we find that engineers around the world can break into it. what we found was one of four groups. We gave them cute little names so people could remember them. We called them New Da Vinci's, Big Man on Campus, Salt of the Earth. Uh, we used to call one of the segments left in the dust, um, but uh, some of our corporate overloads thought that was a little negative, even though I kept saying, look, at it's Wally from Dilbert. <laughs> Right. So we call them the quiet ones, which is, a, you know, a little bit less pejorative. But again, Brian, what's interesting is that those segments have not changed in over two decades. The engineers changed, but not the attitudes. And you mentioned that this is consistent not only 
across time, but across geography. Yeah, that was the real mind blower for me back in 2014 when we brought the segmentation analysis back in. It's just, it was like we reached into Europe, we reached into China, and you still found these four groups all having to figure out how to build these next generation products and technologies. And that's, that's how they work together. Wow. Amazing. Now, uh, do you recall when uh, you started asking questions that revealed attitudes about the career? And then I want to ask you about questions about their attitudes that revealed um, what's going on in the industry. So first, you know, questions about the career and their feelings about the career. Um, when did you start asking? What did you find out when you started asking? And, and has that changed? With regard to their attitudes about the career, we have always found, with a couple of exceptions, which I can talk about, uh, a great deal of satisfaction with their career choice. It's a fraternity. Um, they really do appreciate one might even say long for contact with other engineers. It's, it's like they, they, they understand the world in a different way. And so there is this interesting, ro interestingly robust sense of uh, collaboration uh, that's, mm. that's very much a part of uh, this, this collegiality. Interestingly enough, I do a lot of work for the American Society for Mechanical Engineers. Obviously, that's a sister to the IEEE. Um, and I find a very similar attitude with mechanical engineers as well, as well. Uh, a deep desire for contact. I think that's one of the reasons, for example, that in-person events haven't really lost a lot of their luster. They, the content has had to shift, but that birds of a feather aspect has been fairly consistent. Now, you talk about the industry. That's where I think the biggest changes have come in the survey. Mm -hmm. Because we've had to basically uh, follow that the world for engineering has expanded enormously. I'm not just talking geographically. The fact is, is that they, if they ever did, they, it's, it's no longer just speeds and feeds, even though that's very important. The fact is, is that uh, they have to think about supply chain issues. They have to be thinking about regulatory compliance and not just within their own jurisdictions. They have to be actually thinking about what's going on in Europe and what's going on in, in Asia. Um, they have to think about what's happening in the marketplace. They never had to. They were all sh always shielded from that. Uh, but the fact is they're very cognizant because they realize that affects uh, time to market pressure that affects obsolescence of what they're issuing. And it's not like the technical complexity has gone down. So the fact is, is that uh, mind of the engineer has had to encompass a lot of those dynamics, all of which have an impact on how engineers go about doing their design work. Interesting, interesting. Now, one of the things that popped out of me at just the uh, the most recent uh, survey uh, versus just the, the the immediately preceding ones 
Um, in the last few years, it seems that engineers all around the world um, are responsible for more simultaneous projects and they feel pressured to get them done in less time. Um, to me, that's that, that says more about the industry than, than the, than the engineers. It seems like an, an increase in pressure on, on, on engineers. Um, did you, do you feel the same way? Do do you interpret that uh, similarly? Absolutely. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the, uh, if I can quote, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, with through his character Sherlock Holmes, it's the dog that didn't bark. The fact mm. is, we're going through a global economic slowdown because of COVID, and mm. yet, when you look at the number of projects that they're working on, as well as you point out the amount of time they devote, uh, it hasn't gone down. Now, their access to design resources. Maybe may have gone through a bit of a shakeup, which mm-hmm. we can talk about. Uh, but the fact is, is that yes, there is a continual demand to do more with less, and uh, those engineers in North America have are more likely than their peers to kind of just tough it out, and you know have that. What's interesting though is that around the world, the top three items that are utilized to get through these pressures are self-teaching, about relying on support, relying on educational resources to keep current. Mm -hmm. And I find that universal. So the fact is there are pressures uh, that that they're doing. In fact, um, one of the things that we took note of was that our Asian engineering cohort, particularly those in China, um, Mm -hmm. have a workload in terms of projects that is about 20% above the others and a tenure per work that is about 20% below. So in other words, what you just said was actually more extreme with them. Uh, And uh, as has been observed in the past, our Asian engineers tend to be about eight to 10 years younger. They have less experience and mm-hmm. do their brethren elsewhere. So, uh, and it, 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 it seems to be having an effect. Um, job satisfaction, although still high mm-hmm. in Asia, uh, tends to be less than we see in Europe or North America. So the fact is, it's, you know, it's, this, is a, uh, th- this is a constant ongoing uh, issue that has to be grasped by design teams and managers who are trying to get through this morass of projects. Are there any questions that uh, are new in the past few Mind of the Engineer surveys that have uh, rendered interesting results uh, or notable results? Uh, Or is there anything in the more recent uh, results um, that have stood out, surprised you in any way? Oh, heavens, yes. Take, for example, this thing thing about new technology, new Mm -hmm. hot technologies. Um, 
there has been, especially within the, the marketing community, this real desire to talk to the newer, newest cohort of engineers, the, the younger folks, the folks mm-hmm. just out of engineering school, because they are presumed to have a level of interest in these things. And indeed, uh, the survey shows that there is a bit more hunger for that type of content, for newer technologies, for hot technologies, I put that with air quotes, uh, (laughs) than their older cohorts. But we also asked, uh, we started it with the last one and we repeated it here. We also got an idea of what the risk appetite was. And what was really fascinating to me was that it was the most experienced engineers that had a much greater appetite for risk than did their younger colleagues, suggesting that experience in this context actually has a almost an enabling sense of let's go explore, let's go try things out, hmm. um, let's uh, you know let's like turn over a few more stones. Um, it's arguable. Uh, if indeed it was our more tenured engineers that are also the ones that are really out there looking at chemical engineering, out there looking at the hard sciences, out there looking, you know, at some of the uh, corollary or the, the the adjacent disciplines in engineering, that they might be just more comfortable with that. A uh, couple of others. Well, allow me to, to interrupt there for a moment. Did you design the questions well enough that you are are certain that the issue is an appetite for um, trying new things and 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 accepting riskier uh, courses of action, or is that a result of a pressure to because they have more things to do and less time to do it that they're willing to um that that they feel compelled to do uh to to follow a riskier course of action because they need to get something done that is a very interesting idea um whether they are uh, are or are more tenured engineers are more cognizant of external forces and having to respond um the the data doesn't give us much insight on that, but it makes a whole bunch of sense. I will say, however, that on the measures that we did use to get at risk appetite, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things where there was a distinct uh, difference was uh, the comparison along a scale of whether you're more comfortable dealing with what's achievable or what's possible. And there are several other measures like this. And it was our older engineers that were the ones that were farthest out on the measure of what's possible. And, you know, that it's for that reason that I thought, you know, it's because of that experience. So I cut you off a moment ago. You were about to, to launch into another observation. Yeah, there, there were several that really, really caught my attention. One that uh, really was stunning Uh it's always been a very kind of a simple question. How many suppliers are you working with? Hmm. Pretty straightforward. And it's usually averaged about nine or 10 uh, over, over times. 
there was a dramatic drop in the number of suppliers with whom our engineers are interacting this year. It was a, a decline of about 30%. Hmm. Now, I know you, as well as I, have been watching uh, the trade wars going on with curiosity and interest. And I, for one, and I suspect you as well, have thought, all right, what impact does this have in design decisions? We were seeing uh, with our proprietary work at Beacon earlier this year, some interesting anecdotal data that yeah, there's a little bit more flag waving, you know, uh, uh, suppliers that are uh, noted to be associated with one nation or mm. another. Uh, a little bit more movement, we would think, on some of the measures than we would have or ordinarily expected. But I just saw a report that came out today from McKinsey uh, mm. that is basically saying that about 16 to 20% of global GDP is in play because of the shift in supply chains. Because as we know, wow. that's what... That's where most trade between nations takes place. Mm. It's, it's in large OEMs trading internally and within their value chains. Well, all of a sudden, if we're seeing some evidence that the engineers are cutting back on who they're dealing with, well, that's going to have some very interesting ramifications on the supply chain moving forward. And that really, really caught uh, our attention. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, I appreciate the time that you spent with us. We've been going on for a little bit. And the one question that remains unanswered in our conversation, do engineers like to whitewater raft? Yeah. And surprisingly enough, they actually like a lot of sports. Um, although, God help us if they ever take up beach volleyball. Um, <laughs> and why is that? <laughs> uh, I'm not watching it. That that would be oh, yeah, real, okay, right, yeah. that would be really terrifying. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for your time. Glad to be of service. We've got an article on the web about the mind of the engineer, and we hosted a webinar in mid-August that covered many of the results. There are links on the podcast webpage to both. If you're listening to us via iTunes, Android, Stitcher, or Spotify instead, you can head to eetimes.com and click where it says radio, or you can go straight to the podcast webpage at eetimes.com slash podcasts. We'll be publishing the full results of the Mind of the Engineer survey on September 1st. If you're listening to this podcast after that, we'll have a link to that too. Inherent to competition is comparison. Sure, Jim Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time, but if Eli Manning beat him in the Super Bowl twice, is Brady really the GOAT? The electronics industry is nothing if not competitive, and it thrives on benchmarks to evaluate the performance of all sorts of systems, subsystems, and components. In artificial intelligence, the most popular figure of merit recently has been trillions of operations per second, or TOPS. And of course, because the industry is so competitive, everyone argues whether those benchmarks are fair. Sometimes even the companies that come out on top of the rankings. It's utter chaos, I tell you. Well, maybe not utter chaos. Maybe not even chaos at all. 
but let's call it untidy. Anyway, Mobileye, you'll recall, is the Intel subsidiary that makes vision-based processors that automotive companies use in their driver assist systems. Mobileye engaged market analyst firm Strategy Analytics to explore the hypothesis that TOPS is not as useful a metric as it may initially seem in evaluating the performance of an autonomous vehicle compute platform. Ian Riches is Vice President for the Global Automotive Practice at Strategy Analytics. He led the report about autonomous vehicles and TOPS. Here he is with international editor Junko Yoshida. Because the industry is so competitive, we at EE Times always wonder about exactly how independent some of that research is. Here's Junko getting straight to the point. Um, this is this is actually uh, sponsored by Intel uh, for strategy analytics to to, to this uh, to this report, right? That, that's correct. Mo- Mobileye have have um, contributed to it in terms of some of the research, but it's it's. It's not a puff piece for them, as it were. I, I believe what I've written. I'm very happy to stand behind it. That's great. So if, like, you know, this is a hypothetical. If NVIDIA comes to you next month, and uh, I want you to prove that TOPS is still very important, what would you what would you say? I, I, I would have a challenge to do that, to be quite frank with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, as with everything, there's balance. I'm not saying that TOPS are unimportant. Uh, yep. I'm not saying that we don't need a lot of uh, a lot of power and a lot more power than we have traditionally had. I'm yep. just saying focusing purely on tops as a metric of who's winning is not a good idea. Good, good. No, that explains. And I just want to. I, I get, think yeah. I think Nvidia would understand that as well. Yeah. All right, very good. So we can get that set that aside, you know, right now. Um, so uh, I'm glad you answered my questions. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, go to the top of my questions. You know, it's, it's one of the things that really uh, highlighted in my mind by reading your report was that uh, you know in the industry we kind of we 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 kind of glam onto tops because we think autonomous vehicles are heavily dependent on AI and things like deep learning, deep uh, neural network of that sort. And we kind of, we are led to believe that AI calls for a lot of processing power. Therefore, that, the, you know, bigger number of tops seems to be really appropriate. But in your report, you actually made a point. There's much more to the AV development than deep learning. Can you explain that where in the AV development deep neural network is needed? And when and where DNN becomes kind of dead end. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to address that. Now, now AI in general and DNNs in particular, they're, they're great for many, many things, particularly in the vision pipeline, no question. But I, I think there's a general realization forming that they aren't necessarily the, the, the be all and end all, the complete solution everywhere. So, uh, and actually, I think that um, uh, Starsky Robotic co founder and CEO um, Stefan Seltz Axmeyer described this very well in his blog that went slightly viral or viral in automotive terms when he posted it when he shut down Starsky earlier this year in March. Mm-hmm. He wrote, and I, and I quote here supervised machine learning doesn't live up to the hype. And then if you read the blog, he drew an S-shaped curve for how he'd seen AI capability grow over time. It was a slow start, and it rapidly accelerated, and you got great improvements. And then it kind of tailed off. 
and flattened out, uh, essentially flatlined. And, and I think that's one of the reasons behind the tops race that we've seen in some quarters. The, the problem just keeps getting yeah. more complex the more research that is done. So one answer is just, just throw more compute power in it. We'll, we'll have more networks. We'll have more. You need a DNN for this, for, to recognize wheels, to recognize this feature, recognize that feature, whatever it is. At some point, you have to take a step back and say, hold on, are we, are we on the right track here? Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think that that point is kind of now. Now I'm not. I'm not the. Best, I'm an industry analyst. I'm not an AI expert, so I'm not suitably qualified to make a call as to where the DNNs may win or lose. Mm-hmm. But I think it's clear now from many sources that I've talked to, not just Altaxmai, who I've quoted, that a blanket reliance on AI and throwing as many tops as we can afford at the problem that that's probably not the smartest way forward. There are some more classical AI technologies going back to, to some of the ways we used to do things maybe might be good enough, as it were, and right. keep a lid on that processing power required, enable it to be used in detail where it really does give you huge bang for buck um, and just get out of this paradigm of just throwing more and more and more and more power at the solution because that's great for a research vehicle. But if we ever want to actually bring this into production and yep. bring it into production before 2050... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to find a, a cost-effective and power-effective way of doing that, and just throwing all the world's computing power at it probably isn't the right answer. Good point. All right. So the my next question is that uh, in early stage of AV development, a lot of designers, as I interviewed, they decided to use in their autonomous vehicle the same processor architecture already deployed in the cloud, but the same processor in the AV as well. And the reasoning was that the uh, you know by by using the same architecture both in vehicle and cloud, I think they believe that it's a way to ensure that nothing gets lost in translation between the two. You know, learning and inferences. Um, but you seem to think that's not true. Please explain. I, that's not quite what I'm saying in this because okay. there are there are undoubted and very real advantages to running essentially the same architecture in cloud as in the car. No question. Mm-hmm. If people choose, and it's typically some form of Intel i7 or Xeon and some form of NVIDIA GPUs, physically in the research vehicles and in the cloud, that makes great sense when you're looking at research vehicles scaling into low volume production runs, because what what you gain in having that common architecture. The cost of that is in the cost of that silicon and the power consumption of that silicon. And if you're only in low volume, that's, that, that could well make great sense. Go for it, because okay. it, it yeah. simplifies a lot of the problems. Again, when I come back, if we want to move this into production, yep. if you want to have you know, high-end L2 functionality, the so-called mythical L2+, plus, L3, L4, whatever, which people mm-hmm. are still talking about in the relatively near future, Actually, having something looking at a in-vehicle architecture, which is 100% the best available fit for your use case, even if that's different from the cloud, you're shifting the problem to you're creating another problem. Absolutely, I agree. But there are yeah. some ways around that that the developers are bringing now in terms of you know running code compiled for one platform on another platform. There are some ways around that. Is it perfect? Yep. No, nothing ever is. But it's a case of making your decision, where do I want my pain point to be and how does that sit on my, on my volume curves, as it were? Because depending on where you are, yep. you'll probably make a different decision. Does that does that make some sense? Yeah, it's a, it's a difference between the, what's required in test vehicles versus uh, what needed in a commercial vehicles, right? 
And you're saying that there are ways to translate this. Uh, it may not be perfect, but there are there are compilers and toolers, tools are coming out. Yeah, there's, as I say, having the same architecture in vehicle and in cloud simplifies a lot of things, but it, it brings some other problems as well. So just a blanket decision to do that is, particularly if you're looking at a high volume product, could end up being a, a decision that might come back to bite you in terms of the on-vehicle cost. Understood. All right. Now, um, you also talked about the real world impact of the power consumption of the AV compute mm -hmm. platform, right? And, you know, well, okay, <laughs> autonomous vehicle is a mobile platform, but it's, um, it, it is not exactly a smartphone. So no. tell me that <laughs> why low power is so important for autonomous vehicles. Because Pretty much all proposed AV deployments, robo-taxis, et cetera, are on an electrified platform. That's yep. pretty much all that we're seeing. That, that makes absolute sense. Why, why put a, a legacy dinosaur-burning engine yeah. <laughs> in, in your most advanced compute platform, as it were? But because of the current limitations in battery technology, that really does put a, a spotlight on power consumption. Now, admittedly, it's a it's a an perhaps extreme example, but if you take a robo taxi with a, a sixteen hour a day duty cycle, which is not unreasonable for an airport shuttle or something like that, it could easily be running sixteen hours a day. Mm -hmm. If your compute platform is running at five hundred watts, and I've seen some proposed at way above that, that's eight kilowatt hours during that duty cycle, sixteen hours at five hundred watts. And so even at sort of a projection of where battery prices maybe in a few years, in round numbers, that's $1,000 of additional battery cost you've required that vehicle to have, to have yeah. the same range as if it didn't have that compute platform on it, <laughs> as well as the additional size and weight of that battery. So yeah. as long as we have you know, essentially fairly limited power storage on these vehicles, there is a cost, a very real cost, measurable in, in terms of battery size, weight, and cost to having a, a very high wattage compute platform on that vehicle that you, you can tangibly see in terms of where else you're going to have to spend dollars or what other limitations you're going to have to accept in terms of range of that vehicle. Right. All right. No, that's, uh, that's, that's very true. All right. This here's my last question. Um, you know, one of the things that that's kind of a, I struggled with by reading through the report was that on one hand, you talk about the importance of being thoughtful, but future-proofing, you know, your AV processor choice. But on the other hand, you also say that it's critical to understand the type of workload your platform will be used for. So I, you know, I, I get what you're saying, but it seems like these two things are really go don't exactly go hand in hand because, uh, in my mind, you know, the the AV developers today may not be fully understanding what the future requirements AVs are. So how do you explain? How 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 do you how how, how do you close the gap here? I, I, you know? I think I think you have hit the nail on the head. You need to understand the type of the workload as best you can, yeah, uh, and not just throw a very generic compute platform at it and hope for the best because you'll be saddling yourself with a, with a lot of lot of cost, as it were. But at the same time, in, in many ways, we're we're still exploring the the bounds of our ignorance when it comes to AI. And so over-optimizing a compute platform for what's state-of-the-art today could leave it very badly configured for potential new network topologies. Yeah. And 
in a way, that brings us back to the central thesis where we started, that just looking at headline tops numbers alone is not overly useful sometimes because you could have a processor heavily tilted towards deep learning tops, mm-hmm. but maybe relatively weak on generic flops, floating operations per second, or integer performance. That may turn out, even though you've got this massive amount of tops, if, if some of those flops integer performance turn out to be more important in the future, you might have surprisingly limited headroom for those unimagined workloads. We're, we're seeing new network topologies being developed all the time, new approaches. So just this headline focusing on one figure for one type of workload, it's useful. It's useful, but it's it's not as useful as people might think it is. <laughs> Right, <laughs> you know, you feel like you're future proofing, but then in the end, that as you said, I think you you're correctly said, it might comes back to you, right? Yeah, that's it. So it, it's fine. It's it's having some flexibility in the type of accelerators you're, you're putting into the vehicle, uh, leaving yourself not not headroom, not just headroom in the workloads that you understand, but a little bit of headroom for the unexpected, you might say. Yeah. All right, very good. Well, thank you very much for coming the, coming to the show, Ian. No problem. It's lovely speaking with you as always. The report by Ian Riches is called Should Tops Be Top of Your List When Choosing an AV Processor? We have a link to where you can get it on our podcast webpage. Psst. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You want to learn some history? Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history, and now is when this time. Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to August 29th, 1997, the day that Netflix was incorporated. What is now a multi-billion dollar entertainment and technology company started with an act of neglect. As co-founder Reed Hastings tells the story, he had racked up $40 in late fees for failing to return a copy of Apollo 13 to a video rental store for six weeks because he had misplaced the cassette. And he was so embarrassed, he didn't want to have to tell his wife about it. Been there, done that. Hastings told the New York Times, quote, I said to myself, I'm going to compromise the integrity of my marriage over a late fee? Later, on my way to the gym, Hastings continued, I realized they had a much better business model. You could pay 30 bucks or 40 bucks a month and work out as little or as much as you wanted. Now, Hastings had bumbled onto a successful formula. Avoid excessive late fees plus the gym business model equals Netflix. Netflix would be a video rental business with a flat monthly fee. Oh, and there was one other critical element to the formula. DVDs. DVDs had just been introduced the year before. They were far superior to VHS cassettes in almost every way, including the fact that being small and flat, they could be shipped by mail. It was the beginning of the end for two of the biggest media companies of the late 20th century. Blockbuster in Hollywood, both video rental stores. The final nail in their coffins was streaming. Neither Blockbuster nor Hollywood ever figured it out. Netflix did. And not just the business model. The company figured out how to deliver millions of streams of 
content simultaneously before anyone else figured it out. And it developed its own world-beating compression algorithms to take advantage of every new advance in video capture and in broadband technology. Netflix upset just about everybody, not just other content distribution companies, whether it was a bygone brick-and-mortar like Blockbuster or another of the -the over-the-top streaming services like Hulu. It is hated by other content companies who originally licensed their titles to Netflix for less than what Netflix later proved they were worth. Most of those companies declined to renew those licenses to Netflix. Many have tried to set up standalone streaming services of their own in competition, which sounded like a great idea until everyone realized that a fractured television market with dozens of different incompatible services is less interesting and less lucrative than anyone had imagined. Well, except me. I knew this would lead to sorrow, and I only mention it because I absolutely love saying, I told you so. Well, sorrow for most. Not for Netflix. Netflix just shifted to original programming and started bidding on major motion pictures as if it were a company that intended to distribute content to the theater chains. Add content distributors and theater chains to the list of companies that now hate Netflix. On the plus side, at least for Netflix, TV watchers still love it. During peak viewing hours, Netflix all by itself still represents more than 10% of all internet traffic. That's amazing. So, happy birthday, Netflix. I'm about to start watching the second season of Umbrella Academy. That's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending August 28th. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by AspenCore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.